there in Hebrews chapter 13, we begin reading in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we begin our time. Our Father in heaven, it is a great blessing A great joy to get to gather together here this morning with this body of believers. It's a great blessing and pleasure to get to sing songs of praise to you, to read from your word as we did earlier in Psalm 119, and to see also what you've chosen to reveal to us here in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. God, our prayer this morning is that our time might be entirely glorifying to you. Holy Spirit, might you use it to edify us, to build up our faith, to cause us to be all the more motivated to serve Jesus Christ in whatever arena you have placed us. And ultimately, God, might every moment we spend here this morning be glorifying to you. Might it all be done in a manner that is to the praise of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. We do love you, Jesus. We do pray all these things according to your name. Amen. As someone who has worked with junior high and high school students uh, for the last six years, I guess, it's pretty amazing it's been six years, um, one of my greatest joys uh, is just observing, uh, observing the changes students go through in those years. And as all of you probably know, and as we've all experienced, during those years, one of the greatest choices that is being made, in essence, by those students is what kind of person they want to be known as. And so for the new seventh grader, you'll see them choosing maybe a new passion. Uh, maybe they want to be known as an athlete or Uh, be known more for their academic success. They want to be known for band or choir or what sort of movies they watch, what sort of music they listen to. But whatever it is, they typically come to that decision pretty quickly. And based off of that desire, based off of those passions, you'll see their vocabulary change over time. You'll see the way they dress change. You'll see the type of people they hang out with change. And it's fascinating to see them try to learn the system, to try to convince people this is really who they are. And in essence, try to convince themselves that this really is worth it, that this is paying off. Uh, One of the humorous things, of course, of watching kids at that stage is that that decision changes from year to year. And so one year you'll have a student who's obsessed with with one movie, and the next year suddenly they hate everyone who likes that movie, or they hate everyone that likes that music. And and they do so because it turns out that passion did not pay off, that that did not work out as well as they were hoping. Um, But it's a process that everyone goes through. And indeed, every single one of us in here goes through that process at least once, if not multiple times. We try to figure out what we want to be known as, what passions we think should define us. And as we learn the rules and the vocabulary of those passions and of that personality, we continually ask ourselves, is this worth it? 
Is this really paying off? And regardless of who you are and what your background is, when it comes to the Christian faith, ultimately the process is is very similar. Ultimately, every single Christian from the beginning of the church through today and as long as we have to live on this earth, every Christian ultimately has to ask themselves what it really means to be a Christian. We have to ask ourselves, is it worth it to be known as a Christian? We have to ask ourselves, what sort of things are required to to really be a faithful disciple of Christ? How much do we have to talk about Christ? How much can we just kind of push to the background, push, push to the background that's really not that attractive to the world? And ultimately underneath that, really what dictates that, what what drives us is that deeper question of, of, is it worth it? Is it worth the suffering? Is it worth the struggles that come with it? Is Jesus Christ really that significant? Or can we have all the benefits of Christianity without having all the negative uh, feedback from the world that surrounds us? And the book we're looking at this morning, Hebrews, the believers that are receiving this letter, we're facing this question and facing it in a pretty significant manner. These believers had mostly, it seems, come out of Judaism. And so in professing faith in Jesus Christ, these, these believers would have lost those old peers, those old friends, those old family members, because they would have been seen as a traitor, understandably, to Judaism, if you say Jesus is the Savior, and Jews rejected that. And while also being rejected by their former Jewish, uh, Jewish peers, these believers would have faced the typical persecution that was present in the Roman Empire as well. For the Romans viewed Christianity with great suspicion. They viewed Jesus with great suspicion. And so to profess faith in Christ meant that the Roman government pretty much looked down on you at this point in time. And so these believers, from the point in time at which they've put their faith in Jesus, really faced a lot of persecution, a lot of rejection, a lot of suffering. And what was clearly evident as you read through this letter is is they were starting to question whether or not it was really worth it. Whether or not they could still have that relationship with God, but get rid of this Jesus figure that is just a constant burden on their shoulders. Whether or not they could still maintain salvation, maintain the grace of God, but get rid of those aspects of the faith that, that really are bitter in the mouths of, of, of their peers, and bitter in the minds of the society in which they lived. For this particular group, as we'll see today, their struggle and their temptation was just to kind of return back to the way things were. Go back to Judaism, to go back to a religion that maybe wasn't super persecuted, that that allowed them to be a bit more acceptable. And their question is, can we do this? What does it look like to be a disciple? And and does it really require us to be any different from what we were before? As you read through the book of Hebrews, what you see time and time again is the author seeking to show them that, that, no, this really isn't an option. They can't go back. And time and time again, the the letter of Hebrews or the, the message of Hebrews stands as this constant reminder primarily to the beauty, the supremacy of Christ, and attached to that beauty are a few practical points of what it looks like then to be a proper disciple. One of the helpful things of looking at the end of a book like Hebrews is is the author is really coming to his concluding points. And as we'll see today, in some of these concluding points, he is concerned both with the practical implications, that is, answering the question of what does the life of a disciple look like, But also, even more importantly, more deeply, he's interested in answering the question of of why it must look like that. What motivates you? As we begin, we begin on that more practical note in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. As we begin, we are told very briefly that part of the life of the disciple is quite uh, quite simply, it requires us to remember our spiritual leaders. Very simple, very practical, but you see that there in Hebrews 13, verse 7. There again we read, remember those who led you, 
who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. In this chapter, uh, the author has already mentioned a few basic practical applications of the Christian faith. He's already begun answering the question of what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? And if you just look back one verse, the 13 verse 6, you see that he makes some pretty startling comments. Verse 6, he had been speaking of how we need to be content in Christ, and, and he goes so far as to say that, that contentment in Christ means that we're able to say, along with the psalmist, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? It's a pretty bold statement in light of the fact that the man was doing quite a bit to these Christians. I mean, these Christians were losing their jobs. These Christians were being persecuted. Throughout church history, you see Christians being killed for their faith. And so that question, what can man do to me, is, is a pretty big statement. And you can understand that in light of, of certain persecution, it would be easy for you as a believer to say, what can man do to me? They can do a whole lot to me. And perhaps you even begin to question whether or not it's possible to live up to that calling, whether or not it's possible for you to have that high of expectation, that, that tremendous level of confidence in Christ. And so perhaps in, in response to that doubt, the next practical point speaks this idea of remembering your leaders, remembering that you're not the first to do this, Christians. Others have come before you, they've been successful, and so clearly this calling is not more than you can handle yourselves as believers today. As we remember our former teachers, in verse 7, we see three very quick basic points of application as in what this looks like. The first, most common thing that those believers and that we must be remember to do today, it is as we remember our former spiritual teachers, our former spiritual leaders, we must first of all remember their teaching. This was key for believers in Hebrews, for they were surrounded by a culture, of course, that prided itself in, in this intellectualism. During the Roman Empire, there were a, a huge number of philosophers one could listen to, a huge number of teachers one could listen to, and even within the Jewish community, there's rabbis, there's different teachers that are rising, that are bringing in different points, and, and that would no doubt be attractive. What was important for these readers to remember then is that the initial teachers, those first spiritual leaders that, that really for the first time excited them about Christ, for the first time really showed them the beauty of Christ, it's important to remember that their teaching was pretty simple. It was pretty basic. It was the gospel message. And as difficult as life might get, as far removed as these teachers might seem at the moment, it was important for these readers to remember that their teaching was understandable. There was nothing in their teaching that seemed beyond the comprehension of these believers. It was the gospel. It was the fact that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was raised again, and that if you simply put your faith, your trust in him, you too would be saved. And as simple as that is, this is a key reminder then for these believers as well as for us today, for in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our own difficulties, it's easy to, to turn our faith into something that really is more complex than it is. It's easy to assume that we're somehow missing out on some special teaching, some special lesson that if we were just smarter, we'd possibly understand. No, the life of the disciples is one that simply lived in accordance with the gospel. And if you believe that, if you know the gospel, you know all that you really have to know when it comes to your salvation. But as the author continues and speaks of what it looks like to remember these leaders, you see it's not just concerned with their teaching. Primarily, it's concerned with the idea of, of not just remembering their teaching, but remembering their lives, their examples. You see that in that second part of verse 7 where he says, considering the result of their conduct. Again, this would have been key for believers in Hebrews to hear because they were confronted with a calling that seemed too difficult for them. To live a life faithful to Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering, 
in the midst of persecution, in the midst of losing your job, no doubt seemed too difficult for them to follow. And yet again, as the author is saying here, no, 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 remember, those same teachers, those same leaders that led you to Jesus Christ, they were successful. They lived in the midst of the same persecution you lived in. They suffered in similar ways you did, but they did so, it is assumed here in this text, in a manner that's glorifying to God. They did so in the way that these Hebrew believers used to live. If you read throughout the book of Hebrews, you see there's elements of of this past joy. The author praises them for the fact that in the past, they suffered with joy. They lived out their lives in faithfulness to Christ. They did this with excitement, just as these former leaders had. And so it was key as they remembered these leaders, as they faced this question of what does it look like to be a disciple, it was key to remember they had these people to follow after from their years past. This again, as simple as it is, is so easy for us to forget today. For as we'll see throughout this text, in the midst of our struggles, it's easy to look entirely inward, is it not? It's, it's easy to assume that we're alone in this struggle. It's easy to assume that we're the first ones to have these questions. As a youth pastor, uh, one of my greatest pleasures is meeting with students one-on-one. And oftentimes with great intrepidation and with great shakiness in their voice, they'll, they'll confess that they're having doubts of Christianity. And they'll say things like, well, what about evolution? Or they'll bring up an issue. And what, what's fascinating is that in the midst of their doubts, it's clear these students assume that they're the first person ever to question these issues. They bring up these big issues like evolution, like sovereignty of God, and they bring it up with me as if I'm going to be caught completely off guard. Like, oh, gee, I've never thought about that before. And, and indeed, this is true for all of us. We can become so focused on self that we assume that in our struggles, in our questioning, Surely, this is more than any other man has had to bear in the past. Simply not true. We all have heroes of the faith. We all can look to great Christians who have come before us, who have suffered far worse than us, who have been asked to do far more than we do, and they've done it with great faith, with great joy. And so as we we strive to ask ourselves, okay, what does it look like to be a disciple? Thankfully, God doesn't leave us alone. He, He gives us other people. And he says, in essence, okay, be like that person. You like that great man or woman of faith that that led you to Christ and and lived a life of fruitfulness, lived a life of holiness. Just follow them in what they did. And in so doing, you are fulfilling the calling of the disciple. And indeed, that is where Hebrews ends, verse 7. For it is never enough to simply remember spiritual leaders. No, the whole point of remembering, as you see at the end of verse 7, is that we are to imitate their faith. This is the test, really, of, of of true submission. This is the test of of how much you look up to a leader. It's one thing to say you respect someone. It's one thing to say you you really look up to them. But the true test of whether or not you are willing to follow them is if you're willing to imitate them, especially if that means your own suffering, your own struggles. As these believers are told, yes, it might be difficult. Yes, it might get you persecuted. Yes, you might lose your job. Yes, you might come through uh, areas of, of questioning. But just follow them. Follow that example. Do what your leaders did and you can be sure, you can be confident that you are living out the life of a disciple. And this is all well and good. Very practical teaching. But again, without even delving too deeply into the book of Hebrews and without even being overly critical of our society, even verse 7, when we're honest, can feel really difficult in our lives. For these believers, it was difficult because these former spiritual leaders, it's believed were dead at this point in time. The reason why they're being told to remember those spiritual leaders is because these people are gone now. Whether they were killed for their faith or simply they've passed at old age is unknown. The point is, they're no longer around. 
And so the struggle for these former Jews and Hebrews no doubt comes from the fact that they don't have these heroes of the faith anymore. That these people that led them to Christ have been removed from their lives. And so it's difficult to, to remember their joy. It's difficult to remember their examples. For us in a similar manner, the idea of submission is, is equally difficult, I think. We live in a culture where we love to talk about leadership. Even in our church culture, we, we love to praise this concept of leadership. But at times, I think it can get praised so much that the idea of submitting to leadership is kind of put in the background. And submission is seen as this negative idea in our culture where, where to submit clearly um, must be seen as, as a negative act. To submit means accepting that you are weak, and that simply is un-American, if we're honest, right? We, we're strong people. We can, we can uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can do whatever we can do by ourselves. And if someone's great at this. It's good to look at them as an example, but to follow them, to submit to them, to, to be willing to admit that you're simply imitating them, well, that's seen as a weak act by many believers. Sadly, it's seen as, as a weak faith. Sadly, though, of course, as, as Americans and as believers in this culture, we have to realize that this refusal to imitate, this refusal to acknowledge that we need people that have been better at this to follow is very dangerous for our faith. It's an ignorance of the fact that, that life is difficult. It's ignoring the fact that all of us will struggle. And in so doing, it's ignoring our own weaknesses. When we insist that, that we refuse to submit, when we insist on the idea that we can somehow build ourselves up on our own strength, we are ignorant of how fallen each and every one of us is. As a younger believer who grew up in the church, I definitely fell into this trap where I saw accountability as as a sign of weakness. I would openly tell my peers in youth group that I didn't really need anything from them. In fact, when I worked at a camp, the first small group I was a part of during, you know, get to know you time, the small group leader, I remember, said, okay, we're going to go around the circle now. We're going to say, what do you need from us? How can we help you? And after, three guys, you know, kind of poured their heart out and said, oh, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. I really need you guys to pray for me. I, very confidently, very arrogantly said, you know what? I don't need anything from you. I'll show up to small group time, but I don't need you to pray for me. I'm not going to talk about my sin struggles because they're really not that big of a deal. I'm just going to be here to help you guys out. And in my mind, I thought, good job, Ben. You've just proven your superiority. You've proven that you're clearly more spiritually mature than these people because they need you, but you don't need them at all. And in my mind, my twisted understanding of Christianity, this was a sign of, of faith. This was a sign of strength. But of course, biblically speaking, this is foolishness. And this is outright dangerous. And ultimately, the reason why this is so important is because these practical lessons, as practical as they are, as, as clearly uh, commanded as they are in Scripture, they are simply not enough. If, if we look at our Christian life purely from the point of view of of what does it practically mean to be a Christian? What do I do here? What do I do there? How do I share the gospel with someone? Ultimately, these practical commands will fall short. And ultimately, therefore, if we're standing on our own legs and attempting to do everything by our own strength, we also will fall short. This is why, as Hebrews 13 continues, and why, if you read through the whole book of Hebrews, the author's concern is rarely on this practical question of what does it look like to be a Christian. That's rarely what he's talking about. The much more important question, and I think the question that tends to trip most of us up, is this question of, of why. Why should you follow someone in your faith? Why should you profess faith in Jesus Christ? Why should you be willing to do whatever it is God has called you to accomplish as his disciple? 
The second question, as I mentioned, really is the, the more important question because over time, if we fail to acknowledge its motivation, we will inevitably drift, we will inevitably fall away. And so as the author continues in Hebrews 13, just as he has done through the first 12 chapters, his focus is not simply on remembering your leaders, but, but rather his focus is primarily on this command to remember Christ, remember your Savior. You see this described in verses 8, really through the end of the passage, but we'll just read verses 8 through 12 as we continue this concept of what it means to remember Christ. Picking it back up again in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are so preoccupied never benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now the language towards the end might have lost you a little bit. The language describing sacrifices and, and animals being outside the camp are not necessarily things we think about a lot. But if you follow what the author is saying here, I think you quickly understand the language is still just as relevant today as it was back then. For what the author is attempting to do is what he has done for 12 chapters in Hebrews. And that is arguing this this beauty of Christ. He's trying to get the readers, trying to, to get us to understand that Christ really is enough to motivate us, is enough to keep us passionate, is enough to, to keep us happy and content even in the midst of the worst suffering possible. Because he is so incredible, because he is so inspiring. And you see this, these points really building up off one another. And, and in essence, I think there's three points here that speak to this, this motivation, that speak to this beauty. The first most basic but very important point regarding why Jesus is better and why he's so motivational is seen there in verse 8 where we read again, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The reason why you serve Christ, the reason why he is enough, is first of all built upon the fact that Jesus Christ is constant. He is unchanging. Now, at first glance, it's easy to just say again, okay, well, yeah, great, I believe that. But again, when you compare that to everything else that is offered by any other religion, by any other person in this world, you start seeing how significant and how radical this concept is. Again, if you're a believer in the book of Hebrews, it would be easy to assume that, that something has changed since the point in time you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It was one thing to put your faith in Jesus Christ when everyone around you was doing it, when Jesus Christ had just been raised from the dead and everyone was getting excited, but it's a whole other thing to continue to profess faith in Jesus Christ when everyone around you is persecuting you for it, making fun of you for it, causing you to question the reality of, of Christ's teachings. It's a lot harder to do when other people are bringing in maybe a newer form of religion and saying, yeah, Jesus was great, but have you heard what, what so-and-so is saying now? Have you heard that other rabbi? Have you heard that other teacher? Have you heard about this new philosophy that's being introduced in the town square? In the midst of these, these new philosophies and new teachings, it's easy to assume, okay, well, maybe it's time to move on. Maybe there is something better out there that I just have to find, that I have to, to come, a, uh, come upon. And yet, in the midst of that ever-changing culture, the author of Hebrews reminds us, no, no. No, that same message that saved you, that same message that delivered you from the fires of hell, it's the same message today. That same Jesus Christ that those former teachers taught you about, those former leaders led you to, he's the same Christ he, he was then today. 
And just as he was able to forgive you and save you from your sins back when you were 10 years old, he's able to forgive you and save you from your sins today. And regardless of how much you mess it up in the years coming, he's still going to be the same Jesus in the future, preaching the same gospel, the same salvation, the same forgiveness. Regardless of the time in which you live, regardless of your age, regardless of your maturity, Jesus Christ constantly stays the same. This is so important to remember for us, for similar to the audience in biblical times, we live in a culture that's constantly changing. And people love to introduce new teachings, new understandings of things. And oftentimes, of course, if you follow these people, they're, they're oftentimes using it to excuse immorality, to excuse things which are clearly sin. Well, to do so in this form of, well, this is new revelation. God spoke to me, or I read this passage in the Bible in a way that no one understood before. One of the clearest examples of this in our culture today comes with the issue of sexual immorality. Right? And we live in a day in which more and more professing believers are buying into this idea that the church has somehow figured out that we've misread Scripture for 2,000 years. And it turns out that that which we understood to be black and white sin really is okay in the eyes of God. And it's a good thing we have these brilliant people that came along to make this brand new discovery for us. And a lot of people are quick to latch on to it, and they're quick to latch on to it, well, because these new teachings are attractive. These new teachings are more appealing. These new teachings make them more relevant in the eyes of our culture. And so they're quick to grab onto that which is new. But as believers, the thing we must constantly remember is, no, it has nothing to do with newness. It has nothing to do with how the world might respond. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And if it's different from what Jesus Christ spoke and revealed in Scripture, then it is not Jesus Christ at all. It is not to be followed. It is not to be trusted. The Jesus Christ we serve is so significant and so amazing in the fact that He does not change. He is God. Therefore, His message stays true. Having said that point, as the author continues to argue and build up this, this picture of why Christ is so significant, we read next that not only is Jesus Christ the same or unchanging, but also His gospel is sufficient for everything. Read along with me again in verse 9. They're describing the sufficiency. The author says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. As the author continues on, he again is striving to show his readers they don't need this other teaching. Now, we'll talk about what other teaching these Hebrew readers were attempting to follow. But he's trying to remind them that, no, Jesus Christ is unchanging. Not only that, his gospel message, his, his, his teaching of the gospel, is sufficient for everything you possibly need, both salvation and also for, for your own sanctification, for your own growth, for your own daily strength. That's mentioned there in verse 9. If you're here this morning and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, I assume this means that, that like me, at some point in time, you recognize that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient to save you. And so at some point in time in your life, you confessed you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ's work was enough to, to forgive you, enough to bring you into a saving faith with him, enough to give you eternal life in heaven with our Heavenly Father. That's something all of us as Christians, I think, would be quick to agree with. The struggle, however, comes in the days and the years that follow. For as we continue to move further and further away from that point of, of confession, from that point of salvation, again, it's easy to assume that, that we need something else. As we move further and further away from, uh, further and further away from that day of salvation, 
it's easy to start treating the gospel, that which you profess faith in, as somehow juvenile, as beneath you, as, as overly simplistic. And so we as Christians become more and more passionate to talk about things that we, we deem as, as deep, as theological. We love to get in debates over various passages and, and various interpretations of Scripture with other believers. And we love to, to pretend, at least I oftentimes love to pretend, that that somehow is better for my spiritual strength, that somehow will cause me to grow more than simply meditating upon Jesus Christ, thinking upon the cross. Earlier in the service, we sang the song in which we spoke of how God's grace is always enough, it is always sufficient. And while many of us sing this loudly and with great passion, how oftentimes are we tempted to question that reality? And so again, like these readers in Hebrews, we assume that, that we must need some additional teaching. We need something more. But the author again is saying, no, no, you have all you need. You have Jesus Christ, who is unchanging, and you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for everything, both your initial salvation as well as your daily strength, your daily sanctification, your ultimate glorification in heaven. All of it comes from the same gospel. All of it comes from that same grace of Jesus. This is so key because as the author is speaking here, these these former Jews were being tempted to to somehow move away from this. The author here speaks of food and we'll discuss exactly what that means in the the following verses, but it's clear these these readers have begun to, to drift away from this truth of Jesus. They've begun questioning and without realizing it, they've removed themselves over time from a proper sufficiency in Jesus Christ, from a proper devotion to Jesus Christ. They have, to use language, again, of the rest of the New Testament, drifted from this point of salvation, from that point of truth. And so doing these believers are by no means alone in what they've accomplished. If you read the letter of Jude, you see that he's warning against a similar danger where false teachers have crept in unnoticed and they've introduced licentiousness, this idea of living in sin, and believers have, have started to be a little, become a little attracted to it. Once they drift away from purity in Christ and they start following after these other people. In the book of, uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about these people who are weak in faith and therefore they're tossed about like waves in the ocean. By any new doctrine that comes, they're swept out by it. And again, you see this so frequently in our culture. Uh, a new teacher comes along the scene, a new popular pastor, a new popular author uh, that maybe picks one verse, they rip out of context, and you see well-intentioned believers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ latch on to him without thinking through it. When I was in college, the very popular figure that that caused this was a man by the name of Rob Bell, and that might be familiar to some of you. Rob Bell became extremely popular during my college years because he was this relatively cool guy who made really good-looking videos, and he talked about philosophy and rabbinical teaching, and so he sounded really smart and sounded like a Christian, and I had a lot of friends that said, ah, oh, man, this guy really makes, a, makes Christianity attractive. Right? This is someone I can actually show to my friends. This is someone that, that is, in essence, more beautiful and, and more desirable than Jesus Christ and the gospel that is unadorned. And so a lot of my friends attached themselves to him without realizing that, that over a course of a few years, they were following Rob Bell further and further and further away from the Bible to the point where just a few years ago, Rob Bell denies things like hell. He questions the virgin birth. He questions core, core doctrines of our faith. And, and all of a sudden, my friends who would follow him were left thinking, wait a minute, wait, can I still follow him? I don't understand. Is this still truth? 
Or I somehow lost my way, and without realizing it, a lot of my friends had, had drifted for years from the truth. Their sanctification was, was slowed tremendously. Their faith was, was stunted, and, and all of us are prone to do this. All of us, when questioning the sufficiency of grace, are, are prone to, to drift slowly but surely away from that beauty of Christ, and before we even realize it, we're, we're deep in our own sin. We're buried in immorality. We're buried in this doubt because again, we've forsaken the food of Scripture. We've forsaken the purifying, sanctifying, strengthening grace of Jesus. And so the question comes back to, okay, well Hebrews, how can we avoid doing that? Yes, Jesus Christ never changes. Yes, His gospel is sufficient. But, is it, is it still enough? What about other ministries? What, other, what about other teachings? And this is where the author of Hebrews really lands. This is where his argument throughout Hebrews 1-12 through has eventually led. For as we see finally, not only is he unchanging, not only is his gospel sufficient, but his ministry, the ministry of Jesus Christ, is complete. It is perfect. It leaves nothing undone. You see this once again in verses 10-12. through There we read, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. As the author continues, he once again brings home this point and once again confronts the sinful tendency that these former Jews had fallen into. You see, as I mentioned before, these former believers had drifted from the truth and And they've drifted, surprisingly enough, away from Jesus Christ and back into Judaism. These former Jews had started to to look at what was offered in the Old Covenant, offered in the Old Testament, and they they started thinking, you know, things really weren't that bad. I mean, we still had God. We still had a relationship with God. And and so they were being tempted to look back at the Old Testament and, and act as if that somehow offered something more, something more complete, something more beautiful, than what is offered in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And indeed, as you read through the entire book of Hebrews, you see how that former choice is described. You see what was so tempting about this Old Testament faith to these former Jews, to these presently professing believers. And so, as many of you understand, if you read through Hebrews, you see how, how the author speaks of these great heroes of the faith. For indeed, they have great figures, people that we are to revere, people we should look up to, people like David and Moses and Joshua. Hebrews 11 famously lists out this great hall of faith and and basically lists out every famous Bible story you learned growing up in children's church, right? And all these are great tales, things that would naturally excite us. As he comes into Hebrews chapter 13 here, he, he speaks again not only of these famous heroes, but he speaks of this Old Testament sacrificial system. And he speaks of of these high priests. He speaks of their role in offering these animal sacrifices. He speaks of these grand days like the Day of Atonement. This this great day of sacrifice that's referenced here in Hebrews 13. And and my assumption is, perhaps in none of this, but particularly in this description of sacrifices, that this probably isn't that attractive to any of us today. The idea of hearing of animals being burned up outside the camp probably doesn't get any of our hearts racing. At least it doesn't mine. But when you really consider what what you see throughout all these descriptions is the author really is speaking of of this experience that the Old Covenant offered these former Jews. I I mean, this isn't just 
This, this isn't just story time for these believers. When we speak of David and Moses and Joshua, this is their history. These are their ancestors. These are great warriors, great figures that were renowned in Israel's history. And as unattractive, perhaps, as the animal sacrifice system might be to us today, to be involved in that, again, was an experience. For you had this visual picture of sin. This visual reminder of your, of, of your sin and how unclean it made you. And you had this tangible evidence of forgiveness. Did you not? You were able to say, okay, yes, I'm a sinner, but alright, here's the lamb, I'm done. Right? I, I can see the lamb, I can see the blood spilled, therefore I know I'm forgiven. And, and and ultimately, then, what you understand from these descriptions is, is it's not just this Old Testament. This, this was a, an experience to the Jew. This was something that brought them fulfillment. This is something that represented their overall history, their identity as an Israelite. And so to simply say, yeah, Christ is better, move on, is hard to accept. For what does Christianity offer? What sort of experiences in Jesus Christ? I mean, I think as, as he's talking about here in verse 10, it'd be easy for a Jew to say, you don't even have an altar. You don't have a temple. You have nothing. You have no heroes, but this, this Messiah figure who was crucified as a criminal, that's, that's not a whole lot compared to everything in the Old Testament. And while we're not tempted to perhaps say the same things, in our own culture, there is this obsession with experience, this obsession with with feeling and tasting and, and moving through these rituals. Years ago, you saw a number of people, or I saw a number of people, going back to things like Eastern Orthodoxy because they thought in something older would somehow represent something greater. And the same way that people are, are attracted to beliefs that speak of receiving revelations from God and, and feeling the presence of God and feeling His truth and experiencing His teaching, the same attraction is, is here today. And so it's easy again as believers to ask, okay, is Christianity really better? What does Christ have to offer us that could have been experienced in something that is described in Hebrews 13? That's something that's, that we can read about through the hundreds of pages of the Old Testament. Surprisingly, as he picks it back up, or at least surprisingly in light of what a lot of people assume, his point, of course, is, well, Jesus has everything to offer compared to that. That experience is, is pathetic. Because as great as the Old Testament was, ultimately, as the author is arguing here, the end result isn't joy, it's, it's longing. As great as those sacrifices were, the greatest sacrifice, that which was offered on the Day of Atonement, could not itself be eaten. It was left outside the camp for its associated with shame. And so the priests and that offering, as holy as it was, we're getting left with this sense of longing, understanding that they're still sinful. As you read throughout the book of Hebrews, you see this. As, as great as all these people were, they were sinful. They needed forgiveness. They needed sacrifices. They needed all these things. And ultimately, they needed something they could not provide and the Old Testament could not provide for them. And it's in relationship, it's in response to that, that longing that's presented again that Jesus Christ is once again compared. And you see that comparison very quickly again. In verse 10 through 12, where he says, we have an altar. And it's an altar that those in the, the temple can't, can't touch. They can't eat off this altar. He says here, we have a sacrifice. And it's not a sacrifice that remains outside the camp. It's a sacrifice we continually enjoy today, for it's Jesus Christ himself. We have everything the Old Testament had and more. And all of it, according to Hebrews 13, according to the overall book of Hebrews, all of it is found entirely purely in Jesus Christ. So again, if you read through Hebrews, he says you don't need a high priest. Jesus is the perfect high priest. 
You don't need a, a hero of the faith, for Jesus Christ is perfect in his faith, perfect in his submission. You don't need a, an altar, for Jesus Christ is the altar. You don't need this high priest, for Jesus Christ is the high priest. You don't need a sacrifice, for Jesus Christ is the, the sacrifice. You don't need any sanctification, ultimately, that's drawn from the law, because Jesus Christ provides that as well. Jesus Christ is everything that we needed in the Old Testament, the only difference is that Jesus Christ is entirely effective in what he ultimately offers us. This is signified again in these final few verses where he speaks of the fact that, that Jesus Christ himself offers himself outside the camp. Jesus Christ himself, by his blood, is able to sanctify, able to save his people. Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone, is able to provide everything that the rest of the world claims to offer you, but can never actually accomplish in its own right. And so, yes, yes, the author is saying Jesus Christ is incredible. Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is beautiful. And he is all you need. But herein lies, herein lies the real test at the end of it. For again, you can imagine hearing all this, and perhaps some of you are hearing this for the first time, and you can say, okay, so Jesus is something, right? That's significant. Jesus died for my sins. I'm willing to admit that. In the early church, you can imagine someone hearing this and passing and saying, oh, those Christians maybe are onto something. I'll profess faith in Jesus because clearly he has something to offer me. But, but again, as the author continues, we see again, that's not the call of the disciple. The call of the disciple is not like other religions where they set up a figure on some high, high mountain and they say, look at him, great, let's just keep living our lives, but let's remember how great this person is. No, Christ, yes, sits enthroned, but as he sits, he's telling us that we must follow him. He tells us that we must embrace him. And this is where the calling of discipleship really comes in. This is where we must not simply remember Christ, but we must follow Christ. For as he says in verse 13 and 14, So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This is where the call of discipleship, again, is so difficult to hear and so difficult to accept. For it is one thing to live a proper and respectable life in public, but, but keep your faith hidden at home, as so many people are prone to do. It's an entirely different thing to embrace Christ and openly profess faith in Christ, profess that which is shameful, profess that which causes you to be identified as a follower, and live your life following after that Christ, following after that profession. Of course, for the Jew, this would have been very hard for for Jesus, as it says, the sacrifice outside the camp, the, the gospel, this concept of the crucifixion is shameful in the eyes of the Jew because this is dirty, this is unclean, this separates a person from God. And so, so to embrace Christ is clearly separating oneself from Judaism. It's clearly separating themselves from this law that held them so tightly. Of course, for the Roman, it was no easier for, for to embrace Christ is to embrace a criminal that your government crucified, your government executed publicly. And so to embrace him is to embrace that which the state hates. For us as believers today, it's no different. For the gospel is utterly offensive. Jesus Christ is utterly moronic in the minds of, your, of an unbeliever. We are a culture that celebrates great heroes, that, that do great things and are remembered in great ways. Christianity comes along and says, put your faith in a crucified criminal that everyone thought was crazy. And then talk about how he raised from the dead. Talk about how he ascended to heaven. Talk about all these things that will cause you to look crazy in the eyes of your peers. 
And as difficult as that is, as the author is saying here, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the call of discipleship. And of course, as we read here in this passage, we as believers understand we don't do this as a sort of means of self-pity. The, the believers here in Hebrews aren't being told, yeah, it's really hard and life's going to be awful, but just kind of beat yourself over the head with this and eventually it'll get better. No, he's saying there, in verse 14, we do so not because we think it's shameful, but we do so understanding that that which the world views as shameful is the most beautiful, the most glorious truth ever presented. As shameful and as foolish as Christ is in the eyes of the world, he is the most beautiful magnificent Savior imaginable. His message is so pure. His message is so powerful. His message is so edifying that while the world thinks it's ridiculous, we view it as as that which saves us. We view it as as the power of God, that which is the only thing worth living for, that which is the only thing that is motivational enough to get us out of the bed in the morning, to cause us to continue to live in this world, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution. For we recognize, as verse 14 says, This is not our home. Rather, we continually march forward, following after Jesus Christ, recognizing that that our true end is in God's heavenly kingdom. And so we embrace Him. We embrace that which is shameful in the world's eyes, but we embrace that which we know to be beautiful, we know to be precious. And as we do in verses 15 through 17, we get back to that practical look. We offer up praise to Him. As, As you saw in the video earlier, we are active members in the church. We pour into other people's lives. We follow leaders. We understand the high calling that they're following. And we do that, which we know is practical. We do that, which really all of us, I think, for the most part, understand. But we do it all the while motivated by this beauty of Jesus Christ, this preciousness of the gospel. The question of discipleship, when it comes to our personal lives, and the struggle we have with discipleship, is rarely going to be a matter of whether or not you understand what to do. You know to share your faith. You know enough to share your faith. You know you're supposed to be pure. You know you to read the Bible. You know the ins and outs of discipleship. The question is whether or not you have the same motivation that's presented in Hebrews. Whether or not Christ is beautiful enough in your eyes to embrace, even if it means you will be viewed as utterly shameful and ridiculous in the eyes of our culture. That's the key to our faith. That's the motivation we must follow. And our prayer, therefore, must be that daily the Holy Spirit reminds us and calls us to understand and see that beauty anew, to understand that that gospel is all that we need and that gospel is what we are to follow. And so, as we close this morning, for you who are unbelievers, of course, the calling is repentance. My hope is that you understand that Jesus is indeed greater and far, far supreme over anything this world has to offer you. As new and as attractive as so many teachers are today, they're simply rehashing the same teaching that's been around for centuries. There is nothing new under the sun. There's no grand new proclamation. They're simply repeating that which has been told before. And it's all lies if it's not Jesus. And so my, my calling to you as unbelievers is to, to consider Christ. Consider the beauty that he is. Consider his offer of the gospel and respond in repentance and belief. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, The calling of Hebrews is a calling to remember what motivates us. It's a calling to dwell daily on that beauty of Christ, dwell daily on on the significance and supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's a calling to be amazed, perhaps for the first time in a while, but to be amazed by that beauty, to be amazed by the sufficiency of the grace he offers. And in response, it is the calling to embrace him and follow him throughout the life that he gives us. Let's close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the beauty of your son. 
And while he is shameful in the eyes of the world in which we live, we understand he is your son. He is the power that is able to save us, God. And by his death, burial, and resurrection, we indeed are saved if we have put our, simply our trust in him. God, I thank you for that sacrifice of your son. Jesus Christ, I thank you for your willingness to die for the glory of the Father and to die for our own salvation. My prayer this morning for anyone who is unsaved, God, is that they might see you, they might hear the gospel for the first time, they might experience the goodness, the glorious, the glorious nature of Christ, and they might put their faith in him. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might we be motivated, might we be encouraged here this morning? Indeed, the call of discipleship can seem very difficult at times, but it is nothing beyond our grasp by the power that you give us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It is nothing that is somehow not worth following, but rather in Jesus Christ and the gospel calling, we have the highest and greatest calling imaginable, and that which will bring us true joy, true contentment. So might we follow it with great faith, God. We love you. Pray that you bless this time now as we celebrate you in communion. In Jesus Christ's name again we pray. Amen.